Thanks, John and Bruce. Good afternoon, everyone. Hey, Steve. How you doing? Hi, everybody else. I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Gateway, and it's my privilege to uh, open up this passage of Scripture with you all tonight. Um, to start our time together today, I want to pose this uh, question, this scenario to you. Uh, imagine that you are somewhere, you get to decide where the where is, and you hear this phrase. One hour left. It's the last hour. What does that do to you? What does that make you feel? How do you respond to that statement? It's the last hour, one hour left. Now, obviously, your answer depends on the context, right? If you are, um, you know, outside the, you know, the store, you know, waiting for the store to open so you can go and buy whatever the new thing is that launches at midnight, you know, the Xbox 920 or whatever, uh, then you, you know, you're, you're counting down the time. Oh, my goodness, it's, you know, one hour left. One hour left till I can get in and get through the doors. Um, you know, so obviously context, you know, plays a role in how you answer that question. Um, I had an interesting scenario where, where I had to think about how I was thinking about that. A couple years ago, uh, my family and I went on vacation. We went to this place up in Idaho called Silverwood. It's a theme park. Uh, it's kind of like Six Flags meets SeaWorld meets Disney, and it was amazing. The mistake our family made is that we only did a one-day pass, um, which if you know me and my personality, I must get... Um, every possible bang for my buck. I must uh, get the most value for the money I've spent. And if you spend money going to a theme park, you spend a lot of money, especially when you take six kids. And so uh, do not follow my example. If you ever do that by a two or three day pass, then you don't stress out like I did. When you hear the words, last hour, you know, it's like six o'clock, the park closes at seven. Uh, and then they announce, hey, one hour till park closes. So get in the last lines, you know, start making your way towards the exits. And I immediately, I'm going, oh my goodness. I wanted to make sure we hit every single ride. Well, now there's like, shoot, there were seven I really wanted to go to. We don't realistically have time for that. So maybe we can hit these four or five if we're lucky. So I'm like breaking out the map, strategically going, well, if we go here and then here and then here and then here, and then we end on this one close to the end of the park, like we'll be able to maximize it. We'll get the most out of the time we have left. That's, that's a common personality. That's how I'm wired. Um, it doesn't make it for the most fun experience for the kids that you're like lugging along behind you. Like, come on, we got to have fun. You know, it's like, dad, we're tired. No, I paid for you to be here. We're going to have fun, right? It's, don't do that. But that's, you know, that's my personality. Last hour, one hour left. I got to make the most of the time I have left. Some of my kids have a, a, an inverted version of that, which is uh, they're also thinking about how much time they have left, but they're already lamenting the things they will not have been able to have accomplished by the time that hour ends, right? So it's like, oh my goodness, we only have 43 minutes left. We're not going to get to this. We're not going to get to do that. We're not going to get to see this thing. It's like, well, instead of focusing on the things you're not going to be able to do, why don't we like move faster to go do these other things that I wanted to do? But, so it's like the inverse, but again, the main idea is like, the one personality, I want to get as much done as possible in that last hour. Um, then there's the other personality, which is my wife, who has been dragging around six kids and a seventh adult child through a theme park all day, um, who is mostly just going, can we leave yet? Like, when is this hour going to be up? I'm ready to go home. I'm exhausted. I'm trying not to yell at everybody. I'm trying not to be mad at my husband um, who's dragging us around the park when I just want to go home. Right, that's the, the exhausted parents like, oh my goodness, this hour cannot go by fast enough. Those are kind of the two main personalities. Last hour, make the most of the time you have left. When is this time over? This hour is taking forever. Well, that phrase, this is the last hour, is something that actually gets repeated quite often in the New Testament. 
Jesus says it a handful of times. The Apostle Paul uses that phrase several times. And here in this passage, that's how John begins this section. He says, children, children, it is the last hour. It's the last hour. Guys, we got one hour left. Think about the, the people, the, the first century church that John is writing this to. How do you think that hits them? When they read this, like it's the last hour, what impact do you think that has on them? What type of personalities maybe come out in those responses? You know, some of those people are probably going, oh my goodness, it's the last hour. I gotta get ready. Like this time is almost done. Jesus is coming back soon. I've only got a limited amount of time where I can make a difference for Jesus. I gotta go tell as many people as I can about who he is, what he's done, the hope that he has to offer. I gotta tell people about this, this God who sent his son that died and arose. Like I, I gotta make the most of the time I have left. And think also though about the first century, these people who are living in persecution. The Roman Empire, um, crucifixions, martyrdoms, all these things that are going on. People are going, wait a second, like, I thought Jesus was like bringing this new kingdom and now he's gone and, and it doesn't seem like things are getting any better. And, and there's probably a whole bunch of people that are going, Jesus, could you just hurry this last hour thing up already? Like, I'm, I'm kind of done. Um, how, how long is this going to take? Right, and, and we, can, we can resonate with some of that feeling. Right, now, just so we're all on the same page, the, the generally agreed upon definition of this phrase, the last hour, is this. It says the last hour is the finite, defined period of time between the ascension of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The defined Finite period of time between the ascension of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Uh, another way to think about this, we will talk a lot here at Gateway about the true story of the world. If you've been through our Rooted class, been through uh, many of our other uh, environments, you've probably heard this language. If you haven't, I'll give a quick recap. But we like to think about um, human history in, in four significant acts. First is creation. God makes everything. He creates this good world. He creates people, men and women, in his image to cultivate it, to have dominion over it, to be fruitful, to multiply, to be his image bearers, to continue his work of flourishing and creation in this world that he's given us. It takes about 30 seconds, though, before people decide, hey, I can probably do this better than God does. And so we say, hey, God, not, not uh, your way be done, but my way be done. And then we have the fall in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve eat the fruit and... Uh, it brings sin and death and brokenness and destruction and separates people from God. Thankfully, the story consists of more than two acts. It doesn't end there. God then brings forward his plan of redemption. He knows, hey, people, I realize you're not going to be able to make this right. Now, you could break it all by yourselves, but you're not going to be able to fix it all by yourself. So he makes a way forward. He sends Jesus, his son in the flesh, who lives a perfect life, dies a substitutionary death in our place, is raised from the dead, the only person ever to die and then actually, you know, predict his own resurrection and have it happen. Um, it's such that when we hope in what he has accomplished for us, we now are able to have a right relationship with God. Redemption with God, something that was never possible before the work of Jesus. And then the last act of the story after creation, fall, and redemption is restoration. This picture in Revelation 21 of God uh, coming and making all things new and new heavens and a new earth. No more pain, no more sorrow. No more suffering, no more tears, no more brokenness. And, and this, this definition of the last hour, that's, that's where we find ourselves. It's in between redemption and awaiting 
the restoration that is to come. That's where we are right now. And, and in this last hour, we have a calling and a privilege of giving the world around us a picture, a foretaste of what it's going to be to live in the new heavens and the new earth under God's good and sovereign rule and reign. How we live and love and care for and interact with one another, how we treat one another, how we love one another, is a picture to the world around us of what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth. And we have that privilege and calling to live that out now in this last hour. And this is a pretty big deal. It's such a big deal that, that John is extremely concerned with how we live and operate in this last hour. Uh, he gave us, uh, we looked at the passage last week that Luke talked about, a tremendous exhortation to love what lasts. Um, but John doesn't just go, all right, guys, do the right thing, love what lasts. But thankfully, in the passage we're going to look at today, he then uh, kind of practically and skillfully walks us through some of the threats to be prepared for, things that are going to hinder our ability to love what lasts, and then the things that will guard and protect us against those threats. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Why don't you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, thank you for being present with us tonight. Would you um, speak through me this evening? Would you speak to each one of our hearts? Um, God, do in us, accomplish in us the work uh, that your spirit has set forward to accomplish tonight. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so the first thing that John does in this passage is he's going to help us answer the question, what are the threats to loving what lasts? What are the threats to loving what lasts? Um, and uh, there's two primary things that John looks at. Now, the first is lies or deceit, and the second is antichrists. And so we'll look here at these this three verses, 18, 22, and 26. In 18, it says, children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And so here are these two things that John is going, hey guys, this is pretty important, lies or deception and antichrists. Now, just real quick, if any of you are starting to get like super excited, like, oh my goodness, we're finally going to talk about antichrist, this capital A, you know, apocalyptic historical person, ah, that's not where we're going tonight. So I'm just sorry in advance. Um, you know, John acknowledges that's coming. He says, so an antichrist is coming, a singular figure, but he seems to care a lot more about what he describes as the antichrist that have already come. And so we're actually going to follow John's lead and go there. We're going to camp out there tonight. If that's disappointing, uh, keep coming back because when we finish with the book of 1 John, we're actually going to move into a series in Revelation where um, you'll probably still be disappointed by whatever we say about antichrist and all that stuff. But um, keep coming back anyway. But, uh, so we're going to look tonight at, at lies and lowercase plural antichrists. Another way to think through these categories, lies, John seems to play out as uh, lies we tell ourselves, um, self-deceit. And antichrists, another way to, uh, to translate the anti in front of Christ is, is not just against, but also in place of. So antichrists are anything that either go against or take the place of Jesus in our lives. And that's where John is going in here. And so we're going to start by looking at this idea of lies or self-deceit. It's been a running theme. Uh, if you look back through a couple of other just verses that we've touched on the last several weeks, 1 John 1 verse 6 uh, says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie to ourselves, in parentheses, and do not practice the truth. In verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In chapter 2, verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, talking about Jesus, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. 
In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. So one of the things that John is really hammering on in here is this reality that one of the biggest threats to loving what lasts is our own capacity for self-deceit, to lie to ourselves, just convince ourselves that something other than reality is reality, to convince ourselves that we are in a different place than we really are. And John's been harping on this the whole book so far, and he's not done. He's going to keep going. Uh, and so this will be a repeated theme that continues to show up. But, but something special he's doing in this passage is, is not just talking about the, the lies and the self-deceit, but he's pointing out this destructive combination of our own self-deceit alongside what I would call the seductive murmurings of antichrists. These things that would um, either go directly against Jesus or I think even more dangerously subtly distract and lead us away from Jesus in conjunction with those lies and, and self-deceit. And so there's actually four categories that I want to look at. Um, this in 12 years of pastoral ministry and 38 years of life looking at myself, just being around. I've seen these four categories, these places where we're just prone to self-deceit that I want to just put out in front of us today. Um, and before I go into these, though, here's what I just want to ask you to do. As I'm talking through these, and I'm saying this to myself at the same time, as I'm talking through these, don't, when you hear this, don't go, oh man, I, I really hope Joe hears that. Oh man, I really hope my wife. Oh man, I wish my, wish my adult child would you know, be here tonight and hear this thing. I make sure I send them the link so maybe, like listen, let God do what he wants to do in the heart of somebody else. As I'm talking through this stuff, think about it through the lens of what is God trying to say to you? Where do you see yourself in these categories? The first category of self-deceit is legalism. Legalism, that essentially is just saying, I get to determine my own code of righteousness. I decide what's right and wrong for me. I get to say and determine my own well-being, my own standing before God based on my own accomplishments, my own achievements, my own performance, my own obedience. Uh, the, the interesting thing about legalism is often the things that it tries to trump up and say, here's all this good stuff, is actually good things. Hey, look at, look at how generous I am. Look at my tithing. Look at how I volunteer in the church. Oh, look at how I you know, love my kids and I make so much time for them and I'm present with them and I'm not a slave to my phone. Like, that's all great stuff. The problem is that legalism helps us turn a blind eye to our sin because it goes, hey, no, don't, don't bother looking over there. You know, don't, don't look at how I don't love my wife. You know, don't look at how I you know, don't handle the, the habitual sin which has just been around for forever. Yeah, don't, don't look at that stuff. Don't look at my unethical business practices. Look, look at here. Look at this amazing stuff I do. Legalism helps us turn a blind eye to our sin. And when you combine that with what I call that, that destructive power, the seductive murmuring of the Antichrist, here's what this murmuring comes in and says to the legalist. The Antichrist says, hey, legalist, you get to determine and live by your own code of conduct, your own standard of righteousness. And guess what? Nobody else gets to tell you what that is. And if they try to, they're a bigot. Or they're judgmental. You, you don't want to live by that. Legalists, you get to decide that for yourself. And rather than loving what lasts and loving the people around us, the new commandment that John says we have to do, instead, Antichrist helps us as legalists, uh, helps us judge others who don't abide by our own code. Another category of self-deceit is the opposite of legalism, which is license. License is ironic in that license actually acknowledges sin. 
License says, yeah, yeah, that, that area of my life, whew, I could totally be doing better there. Yeah, that probably was definitely not the right thing to do with, uh, with that money choice, but yeah, you know what? Yeah, I, I'm not going to tell my wife about that. Yeah, I know I keep yelling at my kids, but you know what? Every parent does. You know, God, God's going to forgive it. License takes advantage and cheapens God's grace. License says, you know what? It's okay. Yeah, license acknowledges sin, but says, hey, no big deal. It's okay. God's going to forgive. It'll all be fine. And the, the seductive murmurings of the Antichrist that draws us away from biblical truth and, and tries to help us establish a different pattern, a different value system, a different identity. Antichrist says to the person living in license, you are okay just the way you are. Don't worry about a thing. You don't need to change. And you know what? Other people just need to accept it. And if other people can't accept you for how you are, that's their fault. You don't need that kind of negativity in your life. You know what they need to learn? Tolerance word of the day. And what does that lead to? Rather than loving what lasts, loving others, it leads to an, an unwillingness to consider the needs of others in relationship and rather says, no, you need to consider my needs and what's going to make me feel okay and not push and pressure me. Another area of self-deceit is comparison. I think this is particularly difficult for us in the age of social media, uh, but comparison in which we determine our standing, our identity, our value and worth is good or bad based on how we compare to the people around us. Right, th think, about, think about this. It is, it is not hard. Like, I got six kids. Right? Take your, if you have kids, take your kids out to eat. And I can guarantee you two things will happen. One is you'll feel really good about yourself because you'll look at other families who have also taken their kids out to eat and you'll go, whoo I'm doing better than them. But then you'll look two tables over and you'll see this other table with other parents who have taken their kids out to eat and you're like, oh my goodness, their kids are eating their vegetables and their eyes are not locked behind screens. I am a terrible parent. What am I doing wrong? It's like in the span of 30 seconds, my own standard of value, my own worth has been rocked back and forth because of comparison to somebody who I feel better than and at the same time, somebody I feel worse than. There's this boat that just keeps rocking. And this isn't new. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 18, the parable of Pharisee and the tax collector. It says they both go into the temple to pray and here's the Pharisee's prayer. God, thank you. Which, by the way, is a great way to start a prayer. Like, that's always a good place to start. But he says, God, thank you that I'm not like that guy because he's the worst. Like, that, that's a bad way to end a prayer, just to be clear, right? But, no, what is he doing? He's, he's not going before God saying, God, thank you for your forgiveness. God, thank you for the law that you've given. God, thank you for the standard of living. Thank you for the sacrificial system you provide. No, God, thank you that I'm better than that guy. This is a millennia-old issue, this self-deceitive comparison. And the, the seductive murmurings of the Antichrist comes in and he says, hey, you who's stuck in constant comparison, here's what you need to know. You need to know that your value is completely and totally dependent upon how you stack up to those around you. It's a trap. It's a never-ending wrestle for value. And what this does, instead of loving what lasts, this leads us to inconsistent, fleeting relationships that we're quick to give up on and cast aside to pursue a different relationship that's going to give us a temporary feeling of stability all over again. And the fourth area of self-deceit self is um, the victim. And I want to be careful when I say this because there are very real situations of addiction, of abuse, of childhood trauma, of adverse childhood experiences, um, you know, oppression, 
There are all of these very real things uh, that absolutely create victims. And so I'm not negating, minimizing, denying any of that or saying, you know, go away with that stuff. No, that's very real and that needs help, that needs attention. But here's what I see play out in a lot of situations is where the person who's experienced that, um, the victim then begins to excuse attitudes, actions or inactions or behaviors or ways of treating other people because of their adverse experiences, because of how they've been victimized or hurt. Well, I just, I never had modeled for me uh, how to have, you know, healthy discipline with my kids. So this is just all I know. That's all I can do. Well, I, you know, uh, I'm, just, I'm just angry because this is the thing that happened to me. You know, I, I had this thing happen when I was a child, and so now I'm just, I'm angry. That's, that's who I am. That's part of who I am. And this, the seductive murmuring of the Antichrist comes in and draws the victim away from hope and healing that may be available in Jesus instead, says to the victim, hey, victim, this is what defines you. This is who you are. This is how you'll always be. This is how other people will always see you. This is how other people will always treat you. There's no hope. This defines you. And sadly, how I've had a firsthand perspective to see some of this stuff play out, this often leads to people fatalistically playing the part, just choosing to remain in unhealthy, addictive lifestyles and behaviors, or settling for being mistreated in relationships. Oh, this is just my lot in life. Or on the other side of that, um, moving into what is an understandable but an unhealthy fear or suspicion of other relationships or environments. What's going to be the next thing that's going to victimize me or hurt me or oppress me? And on the surface, none of these self-deceits combined with the murmurings of the, the Antichrist, none of them are explicitly saying, Jesus isn't the Son of God which is one of the, the lies that John talks about there. But here's the thing is it doesn't have to. Because what, this, what these things do, what these areas of self-deceit and the murmurings of Antichrist do, what they do is they, they lead us astray and encourage us to adopt a view of ourselves, a view of the world around us, a view of God that is contrary to the truth of who God is and how he's revealed himself to be in Scripture. They lead us away from the new commandment to love one another. They lead us away from loving what lasts in the last hour. And this is a dangerous place for us to end up in. So if lies and antichrist, if self-deceit and being led astray are two threats to loving what lasts, what is it that protects and guards us against those threats? This is where John goes next. The first thing is truth. Truth. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. John says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And so the first place that John goes to point out where we find protection and guarding from um, from these things that are threats to loving what lasts, is the truth. And specifically, the truth of who is Jesus. And guys, you don't have to go very far in the book of John. You don't have to do much of a study to get some really clear pictures of who Jesus is. This is the message that John says, the message that you have received from us. Jesus is the Christ, 
the son of the living God, the Messiah, God made flesh, taking on flesh, made in human likeness, living a perfect life, dying that sinless death in our place, the substitutionary atonement, the sacrifice, the son of God, the risen Lord, this is who Jesus is. He is the advocate, John writes in chapter two, verse one, the one who stands before God and says, God, yes, they are sinners and I am here to stand in front of them and say they are forgiven because of me. In John chapter two, verse two, it says that Jesus is the propitiation. He is the one who, while he is advocating for us, absorbs the wrath that our sin and our, and our uh, failure and rebellion against God, he absorbs what we deserve so that we can be cleansed and forgiven and we don't have to fear the wrath and judgment of God poured out on us. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. This is the truth that John is constantly calling us to remember and turn our minds to. Don't look to the lies that the seductive antichrists are trying to say, hey, these are the things that define your worldview. Look at this truth. And if this is the truth of who Jesus is, then he has something to say. To the legalist, Jesus says, legalist, you can rest. You don't have to keep striving to prove yourself to yourself, to prove yourself to me, to prove yourself to other people. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to be afraid to look at your shortcomings and sin because legalist, listen, listen, I already know about your sin. And guess what? It's even worse than you think it is. But I have already taken care of it. So you don't have to be afraid to go there. Come, experience the rest and the grace that I have to offer. To the one living with a license, Jesus says, I love you just as you are. But oh man, I also love you way too stinking much to let you stay that way. You have no idea how much more fulfilling and rich your life and relationships will be if you just let me, oh please let me make war with the sin with which you have made peace. To the one living in constant comparison, Jesus says, hey, look at me. Look at me, I am your rock. I am your strong fortress. I am your definition. And my love for you is sure, steadfast, never ending, never failing, never shaken. There is nothing you could do that would ever make me love you anymore. And there is no amount of messing up you could do that would ever make me love you any less. To the victim, Jesus says, hey, I see not just what's been done to you, but I see you for who you are. Now, rest assured, I do see what's been done to you, victim, and I will have my justice. But for you right now in this moment, victim, I have come to heal you, to restore you, to redeem you, to write a new story in your life because you are mine. That is the truth. That is who Jesus is. That is what he has come to do. And this is the message that John says we have heard from the beginning. But thankfully, John doesn't just go, hey guys, here's the truth. Figure it out on your own from here. Because we all know that's not how it works. Right, if anybody, anybody in this room, and we won't do a show of hands, but if anybody in here has ever dealt with anxiety or panic attacks or depression, you don't reason or truth your way out of that. Right? You're not sitting here and go this, what you might think is an irrational fear, freaking out and going, 
God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Hey, I magically feel better. That's not how it works. If you think that's how it works, please come talk to me after. We need to have longer conversations. And don't say that to other people who are hurting, please. It's true, but there's a time and a place for that. And that's not how it works. And so thankfully, John doesn't just go remember the truth. He moves on to this second thing that guards and protects us against the threats to loving what lasts, which is that the reality of who we are, that we are anointed. We're anointed. In verse 20, it says, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. In verse 27, the anointing you received from him abides in you. As his anointing teaches you about everything and is true. We're anointed. Now this is a This is important language. Anointing was a symbolic act done to uh, kings and authorities, marking them as kind of divinely chosen. And so this is really important language for us. It says we are anointed. What does that mean? Put very simply, what it means is it says we are anointed. If you believe in the truth, if you would confess your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you say, hey, who Jesus is is the Son of God, I believe that to be true, then you, my friends, have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. You've received the Holy Spirit, every single Christian. The third member of the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Spirit that we talked about, that we recited in the Nicene Creed a little while ago, the Holy Spirit has anointed us, has washed over us, has made us new. Look at these just three different passages of Scripture that talk about practically what that means. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, it says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has put on us his seal and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In Luke 4.18, Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah says, The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. In John 14, Jesus again says this. He says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What guards and protects us from the threats to loving what lasts is not just remembering the truth of who God is. It's also remembering who we are as anointed that as these passages lay out that we are loved and set apart by God. We're chosen. We are sealed with his Holy Spirit. And it says that, uh, that he is the guarantee. It's this term almost like a down payment. It's a promise of this work that's going to be completed. The work that he's going to do in and through us. To be anointed by the Holy Spirit means that we have a purpose and a privilege of doing something in this last hour that will never need to be done in the new heavens and the new earth. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more need for hope to be given, for freedom to be promised, for, for rescue to be given to those who are oppressed and in slavery, because it's already done. And so the Holy Spirit has come now in this time and anointed saying, there is this special opportunity that you have only for you in this moment. I'm gonna help you with that. That's what it is to be anointed. And so it's not just remembering the truth of who Jesus is, but also who we are as anointed. But John doesn't even stop there. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, what's going to feel like a left turn. I promise it's not. Just bear with me. Um, but the first century church had a susceptibility to something that has, I think, plagued humanity since Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and, and I think it plagues us to this day. And what, it's what I'm calling the allure of secret knowledge. 
The allure of secret knowledge. Now, the first place we see this play out, like I said, is in Genesis 3. You have the garden, you have Adam and Eve, and everything is super awesome. Uh, And then, you know, the one deal is here's this tree, don't eat from this tree. That's the one rule. God says, hey, everything else, have at it, enjoy, do all the things. And so, of course, what happens is the serpent comes in, and here's what he does. This slight exaggeration. Hey, hey, Eve, Eve, come over here. Hey, check this fruit out. Do you you see how beautiful this is? Oh, you have no idea. This is going to taste even better than you imagine. And not only is it going to taste better, Eve, Oh yeah, Adam, you're there too. Yeah, come on over. Not only is it going to taste better, but here's the thing that, that God doesn't want you to know. Once you take a bite out of this, oh man, guys, your eyes are going to be opened. You'll see things like you have never even dreamed of seeing them before. It'll blow your mind. Now, here's the crazy thing. Is the serpent wasn't lying. He was, he was actually telling the truth. He just wasn't telling them exactly what they were going to see and exactly what was going to happen when their eyes were going to be opened. But he comes into this, hey guys, God is holding out. There's more on the other side of this knowledge. If you just quit looking at what God says, come, come over here. And in Genesis 3, we have this allure of secret knowledge. In the first century church that John is writing to, we see this weird deal in, in verse 19. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Where's my homeschoolers in the room? If you would be willing to diagram that sentence for me, um, extra credit, I love diagramming sentences. My parents will tell you I loved it because I'm weird. And uh, I could not diagram that sentence. Like, what is happening here? It's weird. Can you figure out a different way to translate that? But there's a little bit of clarity that's added. Then in verse 26, John is writing about the same group of people that went out. He says, I write these things to you about those, that group of people he references in verse 19, who are trying to deceive you. So here's what's happening. The first century church is freaking out. They're going, wait a second. Things are getting worse, not better What's going on? Not only are we having issues out there, we're having issues in here. There's church splits, there's arguments, there's fights, there's oppression from the Roman Empire, there's all this craziness. Is Jesus really going to come back? Can I really trust him? What if I'm just bought into a lie? And there's all this uncertainty that's happening because of the difficulty, the pain, the suffering, the confusion that they were living in. And this group of people, these deceivers, were coming in and going, hey, I can help you make sense of that. Yeah, I know about the promises of God, but like, hey, here's some secret knowledge. Hey, and there were a variety of heresies that were being espoused, you know, things about Jesus wasn't really in the flesh. It was just like a vision given by God or an allegory. Um, You know, Jesus didn't really, you know, rise from the dead. There's all sorts of different things that, but like these heresies, but like, hey guys, I know you're living in craziness and you just want to make sense of it. That's totally great. Hey, come over here. I have this knowledge. Man, if you just look into this, then I, I, I can help you make sense of this and you'll feel better. And we're in kind of the same place today. That temptation is the same to us. How I describe the first century church is no different than how I describe the 21st century church. Injustice, suffering, oppression, worldly descent into godlessness, relational issues, depression, mental health, addictions, substance abuse. There's no difference in the difficulty and the pain and the suffering. And so we're just as susceptible to that allure of secret knowledge. Functionally, we begin believing, if I can just make sense of where I'm at, of what's going on, then I'll know what to do, then I can prepare, then I'll be okay. And as one of your shepherds, because I love you, 
I really do. And I want to be honest with you. I'm going to share with you a few different areas where I've just sadly watched many in our congregation get drawn into this allure of secret knowledge over the past few years. The first is in conspiracy theories and political theater. Now listen, I've seen the memes, you know, the one that says, hey, I need to find some new conspiracy theories because all the old ones I followed turned out to be true, right? So like, I'm not saying that some of these things aren't true, there's not something to them, but here's, here's what I've seen play out. And I'm going to use some words and phrases that many of you have no idea what I'm talking about. If that's the case, more power to you. Don't look it up. You don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But, but uh, 25th Amendment, secret cabals, globalists, adrenochrome, child trafficking, that's a real thing, but there's a whole other thing going on underneath. There's like all these conspiracy theories and the secret government and a secret army and tunnels and all this kind of stuff and Wayfair and oh, the, the Listen, some of that stuff may be real, I don't know, but here's what I know. Here's what I've watched play out in front of my eyes. I've watched people get locked into this and just go, man, I need to know what's happening. I need to make sense of this. And they start connecting the dots and connect these. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? And we help each other freak out. And then what happens? If you're not freaking out to the degree that I'm freaking out, what's wrong with you? Why are you freaking out about this? And then we get these relational discords that take place within families, within church friends and relationships and small groups, and then we go, poof. I've sat across from grandparents who have lamented and told me, I wish we would not have gone down that rabbit hole because it consumed my time and attention, and I didn't have enough energy and attention to give my grandkids before they moved away. I've watched Marriages blow up because one spouse or the other is just buying into and focusing all these things rather than on their spouse who's right alongside them. And we get so tied up in connecting these dots to all these things that we have no influence over that our connection to the things and the people that we actually do have influence over just begins to unravel. It's heartbreaking. Another area where we get drawn into the allure of secret knowledge is in parenting. Parenting is hard, people. I got six kids, and it's no easier if you got one. It's, it's hard, but it's like, well, why didn't this thing, it worked with this kid, why didn't it work with this one? I don't know what to do now. And so I start reading this book, and this book, and this book. Well, that book says something different than that book, so I have to burn that one now, and anybody who's associated with that one, and now I have to go back and apologize to these three other kids because I didn't do the thing according to what this book says now. Oh, and did you see that story on Instagram? Oh, I should probably try this diet. And we start bouncing around, and here's what's happening. Again, none of that stuff is necessarily bad or wrong. Explore, get resources, information, it's fine. But functionally, what's taking place is we're going, as parents, I just need to find the silver bullet. If I can just find this one thing that will make me successful as a parent, then I know I'll be okay. Then I'll know that I'm a good parent. And it's exhausting. I've seen this play out in uh, mental health and trauma issues. And again, I'm not minimizing or, or negating or denying the importance of any of this stuff. Being able to share and tell and understand your story is crucial to healing to the point that it helps you interact with who God is relative to your story. But here's what I have seen play out is functionally people get to a place where they go, if I can just understand my story, if I can make sense of what happened to me, if I know why I am the way that I am, why I have the triggers I do, if I can just understand my story, then I'll be okay. Then I'll know what to do. And here's the problem with all three of those areas where we get drawn to the allure of secret knowledge. None of them are telling us who God is as the king who holds the rulers, the nations in his hand. Man, what comfort would that offer as we're wrestling with conspiracy theories and political theater? 
None of those secret knowledge things draw us back to the God who is the perfect and loving parent who understands the difficulty of that because, man, who has more wayward children than God? Am I right? He says, hey, guys, I know I I can help with that. None of those things draw us back to the God who is rewriting our story. Instead, it says, no, I got to figure out my own story. And so here's what John's saying. No amount of knowledge or information that we can amass on our own will ever provide us with the comfort, the clarity, the assurance, the safety, protection, whatever that we need, even if that knowledge sometimes is true. Information plus more information equals information. But now I have more information that I have to make sense of, so I have to get more information over here. Well, what happens when that contradicts that information? And it's just this vicious cycle that spirals down and down There's this cycle of deceit that leads to despair and death. And I think at that moment, Satan's just going, job well done me. I didn't even have to tell them that Jesus wasn't Lord. I just had to get them to look somewhere else besides Jesus. And so John concludes with this in verse 27, which speaks to the allure of secret knowledge. He says, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true, it is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. What is it that guards and protects us against the threat of lies and antichrist, of self-deceit and being led astray? It's not just knowing the truth. It's not just being anointed by the Spirit, but it's also abiding in, dwelling in, being tethered to the Spirit. It's this powerful combination of truth, anointing, and abiding. This, this is what guards us. And the reality is we don't need more knowledge. We don't need secret knowledge. We don't need somebody else to teach us because we have already received from the Spirit what we need. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 16. I think we'll put this up here on the screen. John chapter 16, 13 through 15. Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We're not lacking in knowledge or truth. We already have what we need to be okay, to be steadfast in the turbulence of this last hour. We don't need more knowledge because the truth, the spirit of truth guides us. We don't need to run ourselves ragged trying to make sense of everything and try to figure out every possible cause and outcome because the spirit, he says, will declare to us the things that are to come. God himself abides in us. He is dwelling in us. He is tethered to us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. And it's his abiding in us that serves as the ultimate, the ultimate protection against the allure of lies and antichrist that assail us from within and without. What that means for us is that in the midst of all this chaos, if he abides in us and we abide in him, then we don't have to make sense of everything because we are eternally tethered to the one who is writing the story and who has already determined its end. You pray with me. Jesus, thank you for the gift of truth, the powerful work of the gospel, what you've done for us. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. You yourself said it would be better for you to depart so that you could send us your spirit. Thank you for the anointing of the spirit. And thank you, God, that uh, our hope is not in how tightly we can cling to you, but how firmly you hold on to us. 
Help us to remember that and live in that truth. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark.